One of the things that I appreciate uh, that we seek to do here is uh, understanding what worship is, is very important because in the movement of the last 10 to 15 years in worship, much of the writing and the singing has been focused on our intimacy with God, that the veil has been broken and that we have access to the throne of grace and we can have an intimate relationship with God and He is our Father and we approach Him as sons and as children and, and all of those are true and it's right, but we are in danger in many churches of losing the transcendency of God, that God is holy and He is separate and He is to be feared and He is to be reverenced and He is to be given the glory due His name. And one of the things we must never lose if we're going to truly worship God is to understand this. And this is a principle that Warren Wearsby reminded me of this week. We were talking on the phone. He said, we always begin with the transcendence of God. Isaiah saw the Lord and it changed him. And then he cried out to God. Our crying out to God for intimate relationship with Him, our crying out to God for uh, that perfect relationship with Him that we long for is always based on us understanding that God is holy and separate. And we do not approach Him with dirty hands and with dirty hearts. That we come before Him with clean hands and with clean hearts. The psalmist said, Who may ascend to the hill of the Lord? He who has clean hands and a pure heart. And so worship is first of all the transcendence of God. God is worthy to be praised. And then it becomes intimate. And the reason why intimacy with God sometimes gets sloppy in churches is because they have lost the transcendent nature of God, that He is other than we are. He is greater than we are. And we are to ascribe to Him the glory that is due His name, the majesty and glory of His name, not our names. His name. So thank you, choir. Thank you, orchestra, for reminding us today that He is a transcendent God who is worthy of worship. We're going to talk this morning about worship at its core is an offering. First of all, it's an offering of ourselves. And I want you to turn, if you haven't already, to Psalm 96. Psalm 96. And what I hope to do for you today is to give you some very practical ways that your worship can be more meaningful from today on. I, I am very concerned that today I in some way communicate that worship can be more than what it is right now, more than what we have even experienced, and we enjoy our worship, and we enjoy our church, and God's been good to us, but that, that there is something more that we can do to prepare our hearts for how we worship and the way we view our relationship with God. So today, for me, this is one of those messages, especially for those of you that are parents of preschoolers and children, this is important for you to understand how you help develop children who are worshipers, who understand it's not just singing notes and songs. It is a worship encounter with the living God. And so I hope that you'll take good notes today, and I hope that I can be very practical because my goal today is to help you, 
to help you to, to know how as a single adult, as a young adult, as a senior adult, how our worship, corporate worship experience can be more of what God intends it to be and to move down the path that God intends us uh, to go down in the fact that He is always taking us deeper and further. But today will be very practical. So uh, we're going to begin at Psalm 96. We're going to look at some other scriptures, but primarily we'll be in the 96th Psalm. Ascribe to the Lord the glory of His name. Bring an offering and come into His courts. Worship the Lord in holy attire. Tremble before Him all the earth. Say among the nations, the Lord reigns. Now, if you notice the verbs in those verses, there are things we are supposed to do when we come to worship. We do not come and put our minds in neutral. We are to give God the honor and the glory to His name, and He tells us some ways that we do that. George Morrison, in his commentary on Psalms, said, In public worship, in the sanctuary, there are certain demands made upon every worshiper. There are certain elements that must be present if the worship is to be in spirit and in truth. And among others, these are the three primary ones that he mentioned. Number one, thanksgiving. Worship needs to be a time of thanksgiving. We typically, in our culture, refer to thanksgiving as a time of the year when we eat too much. Worship is to be a time of thanksgiving for God's goodness, for God's grace, for God's favor in our lives, for God's answering of prayers, thankfulness for God's salvation that He's provided for us, for the Holy Spirit. Secondly, it is to be a sense of indebtedness to Christ. We are to have a sense of indebtedness to Christ, that when we walk in the room, there should be a sense that I owe everything I am to Jesus Christ. All that I have, all that I possess, my gifts, my abilities, my talents, my treasures, my health is all a gift from God. I am indebted to Christ that while I was yet a sinner, Christ died for me. And that whatever I am today, I am by His grace. And then thirdly, self-sacrifice. Self-sacrifice. Now, the first thing we're going to look at this morning is worship is a tangible offering. A tangible offering. There were 13 collection boxes in the temple at the time that Jesus walked the earth. Four of those were for free will offerings. But there were 13 different places where people could give and take an offering. That's why sometimes in churches you will see, rather than them taking an offering, they have collection boxes in the backs and you drop your offering in there because they're taking it from the historical Jewish perspective of the temple offering. And so there were four that were given for free will offerings. Now we know in the first century church that God gave them a greater motivation than the law. God gave them the motivation of grace to give. The Macedonians first gave themselves. We, we thank God, Paul says, for his indescribable gift to us. And we read the book of Acts, and although Ananias and Sapphira didn't get it, they missed the point, uh, Barnabas did, and the church did. And in Acts chapter 2, you see that they gave willingly and sacrificially, and there were none in need. There were, there were no needs that the church did not meet. Because God had laid it on their heart. They gave from the widow's might to the, wealth, to the wealthy. Uh, to the whole perspective, they gave sacrificially 
their offerings. Now, Zacharias, if you, not Zacharias, Zacchaeus, if you remember, was a tither. He's a good Jew. He's going to pay his tithe. But when he met Jesus, he said, I'm going to give half of all my goods. Why? Because the grace of God struck him. He was struck by grace and realized that God had done something in his life that he could not even begin to imagine in his religious box that he was living in. And he began to give sacrificially. Here's our problem. The love of self and the love of money has become an acceptable heresy in the church of the 21st century. The love of self and the love of money What's in it for me? How little can I do? What can I get by with? Is this enough? The quote that's in your notes by Ann Ortland says, if you ask, well, I never give enough, you've already said, I've decided I'm not going to give enough. You've already predetermined the lid on your commitment of what you're going to do. And so when we talk about this love of money, you realize that Timothy said in 2 Timothy 3.2, in the last days, people will be lovers of self. Now that plays out in a lot of ways. Laborers who are lovers of self strike and hurt the economy. People who are lovers of self hurt their family members because they care more about themselves than their corporate family. Children who are lovers of self become delinquents because they don't put themselves under authority and they don't respect any authority that's been given to them. Citizens who are lovers of themselves create a lawless society. Nobody can tell me what to do. And churches that are full of lovers of self eventually have factions and fights because everybody's trying to get their way. And so the lover of self and the lover of money issue is laid aside because when I bring my offering, when these children brought these offerings, they could have said, you know, that's a lot of money. I mean, I'm looking down here and, man, take that and I could buy me a CD or I could buy me a whole lot of milkshakes. But you know what? Bringing this and putting in this right here, you know what that said? I love what this church is doing more than I love myself. That's exactly what they said. They may not have put it in those words. If you had put a microphone in their face and asked them, is that what you were doing? They might not have understood it. But I want to tell you, it was an act of worship and an act of faith for our children to collect this and bring it down to this altar on this day. It was a tangible offering. They worshiped God today through their giving. Now, in the Old Testament, it is clear that worship involved giving. The Jews never came empty-handed. They may have carried their offering on their shoulders as a spotless lamb. They may have drug it behind them. They may have carried it in a cage. They may have had it in their hand. They may have had it in their pocket, but they brought something with them. Here's a verse that you and I have, would like for God to take out of the Bible. Exodus chapter 24 and verse 20. No one is to appear before me empty-handed. No one is to appear before me empty-handed. God said, and he has not excluded that verse from our lives, God said that when you come in my presence, you come and you bring me something. You come to sing, you bring me the worship and the honor that is due my name. You bring me an offering. You come into my presence, not empty-handed or empty-headed. 
Don't come empty-headed. Don't come empty-handed. Worship is not something where we put our minds in neutral and we coast through it. Worship requires us to think and to be involved and to be engaged in what God is doing. And so they carried their offering. Then secondly, worship is a prepared heart. Worship is a prepared heart. Look at verse 4 of Psalm 96. For great is the Lord and greatly to be praised. He is to be feared above all gods. One of our senior adults who's in a nursing home has not been in church in years. This past week gave to one of our staff members, said, I want to do something for generations. I, I want to be a part of it. I want to do something. And she took her purse and literally emptied her purse and gave $15. That's all she had. Gave every penny she had in her purse. She lives off a fixed income. She's been in a nursing home for a number of years, which is very expensive, and you understand that. But she said, I want to be a part. You know why? She had a prepared heart. She, was, she had a prepared heart. She was willing to ascribe to the Lord the glory to His name. Great is the Lord and greatly to be praised. You see, I, I come to God offering a clean heart and an uncluttered heart. I, and my greatest offering is, first of all, me. It's not what I put in the plate. It's myself on the altar before God. And so uh, I, I want to give you some suggestions. There are three, and there's some things under them. Number one, if you're going to worship, you must come to church with a clean heart. You must come to church with a clean heart. You see, you never approach greatness casually. You never approach greatness casually or flippantly. If you are about to meet a very great and important person, you don't just walk up to them like you walk up to a member of your family and just start talking and treating them with any kind of disrespect. You show respect for that person. The same is true with God. We come to church with clean hearts. You see, it is really out of order for the invitation to say, if there's something in your life that needs to be straightened out, you come to the altar this morning during the invitation because the truth of the matter is you already should have been on your knees before you ever got to church and said, Lord, if there's anything that would hinder my worship today from hearing from you and receiving from you what you have for me, then I want you to say it to me, speak it to me. I want to know it because I want to be right with you when I walk into the church. I want to walk into your house. I want to understand it's a holy place, not because of buildings, but because you're there. And I want to come with a clean heart. Isaiah saw the Lord and he said, Woe is me, for I'm a man with unclean lips. Here are a couple of questions you can ask yourself. Is there anything you came to church today justifying? Yeah, but I know other people that do this. That's not the issue. Is there anything you came rationalizing? Well, I, I think I could do this because after all, God's a God of love and God's a God of forgiveness, but He is a God of holiness. Is there anyone you need to forgive? Is there anyone you need to apologize to? Is there anything that's hindering you from worshiping? Is there anything that's clouding your mind or cluttering your mind, keeping you from seeing what God wants you to see in His Word today? Is there anything that you need to change in your life? Remember the first point is worship is a tangible offering. The second one is worship is a prepared heart. What that means is simply this. It's easier to lay an offering in the plate than it is to lay down a grudge. 
You can give money and still not be right with God. You can put something in the plate today and still have broken fellowship with a brother or sister in Christ. You can put money in and still hold a grudge. And what we have to do is realize that God expects us to come before Him with clean hearts, with pure hearts. Secondly, come early. Now, I'm about to step on some toes. So just go ahead and lift your feet up now and hold them there for about eight minutes. And I might not get you. Come early. Psalm 52 and verse 9. Your name is good, and I will praise you in the presence of your saints. Hebrews says, forsake not the assembling of yourselves together. Come early. Let me ask you a question. How eager are you to come to worship? Let me define the word eager according to Webster's Dictionary. Eager implies great enthusiasm and zeal in the pursuit of something. Eager suggests intense desire to enjoy or possess something. Now, a couple of weeks, I'm going to go to the Masters. And I'm going to be there Thursday, Friday, Saturday, and I'm just going to tell you right now, it's one of my Sunday vacations. I was here last year, it was Easter Sunday, and I stayed. But this one, I'm going to tell you, it's, it's a vacation. I, preachers do get vacations, okay? Somebody out there is going to write me a note and say, oh, the devil never takes a vacation. Well, good. <laughs> you be here and stand in the gap for me. <laughs> if I was gone as much as some of y'all are gone, I'd, you wouldn't even have a pastor. <laughs> Ouch. <laughs> But I want to tell you something. I don't get up and go to the masters and say, well, I don't know. Let's show up 3 o'clock, you think? Sleep in, have a casual breakfast, park five miles away. Just go and just stand and hope they'll walk by us. No, man, I'm there. I'm up early. I get up and we get in our car. We're going to beat the traffic. I want to be there. And we have been there, right? We're there before the gates open. Why? I'm going to get that pairing sheet, I'm going to find out where they are, and I'm going to go put my chair down where I want to sit, and I'm going to have my seat in place, and I'm going to go find Arnold Palmer, and I'm going to find Jack Nicholas, and I'm going to find Tiger Woods, if you can even get close to where he is, and I'm going to find all these guys, and I'm going to follow them and say, okay, if we're here now, then if we walk over here, and we did this last year, uh, Fred Couples is going to be coming to number eight over here in about 15 minutes, and then Arnold Palmer's in the group right behind him. So we're going to go over there. Why? We're going to be prepared. We get there early. Every year that I've gone on Thursday, I've watched the ceremonial first tee. I saw Gene Sarazen hit his last one. I saw Byron Nelson hit his last one. I one day hopefully see Arnold Palmer hit his last one. But I'm there early. Why? Because of anticipation. Anticipation. And because it's such a unique experience. Now let me ask you something. Why has church become a thing we don't anticipate God doing something? Why am I there? I want to see a great shot. I want to see somebody make a great putt. I want to see somebody hit it out of the woods. I want to see, uh, I saw Biasteris one year hit it between about 80 trees. And it, that, that ball made more curves than you can imagine. I, I saw that shot. I went, wow, that's incredible. You know, and what we do when we come to church? I guess we're going to sing and hear another sermon. Lord, thanks for saving me. Appreciate the fact that when I die, I'm going to get to go to heaven. But I hope you don't expect much out of me right now. 
because I was up watching Saturday Night Live last night, and it was long, and I, I didn't get as much sleep as I should have. You come early because coming early says you anticipate. Listen, if you had an appointment with George W. Bush tomorrow at 8.05, would you show up at 8.15? Why are you showing up at 9.45 for church? Why are you walking in late for church? You've got more respect for the President of the United States than you do for a holy God. Because you think, I can casually come in, casually approach, sit down, act however I want to act, disturb whoever I want to disturb, and I don't have to participate until I feel like participating. That is a mighty, arrogant attitude in the presence of a holy God. Now, folks, listen. If you can get your kids to school on time, you can get them to church on time. If you can get to work on time, you can get to church on time. And by the way, when you don't get your kids to church on time, let me tell you what that says. You fear your boss and your principal more than you do your God. Don't be flippant about coming into this house and worshiping a holy God. Don't you dare be flippant about that. And if you leave and don't come back because you're mad at me because I said that, shame on you because that means that you're more concerned about your feelings being hurt than worshiping a holy God. And God is holy and worthy to be praised. And God says, this is what I want from you. And we say, no, I don't want to do that. I don't, I don't want to get there. We're more afraid of other people than we are of our God. We're too casual about His presence. We're too casual about being when we just drift into church. You say, well, you're being legalistic. No, I'm not. I'm telling you how love ought to be expressed. Now, my wife would tell you, I'm early for everything. Drives her crazy. I'm early for everything. I get there. Sometimes I'll get places that the door's not open. I mean, I'm just there. I was at Pancake Pantry this week. I wanted to be there at 7 o'clock when they opened. Why? That's because when God shows up to eat. That's why I want to be there when God's there. God eats early and I eat early. So I wanted to be there, make sure I was with Him. Come early. Don't drag in. Don't be casual about it. Don't be flippant about it. This is the worship of the God who died on a cross to save your soul. Adjust your schedule five minutes for that kind of God. Make sure you're on time. Be prepared in your heart for what God wants to do and what God wants to say to you. Now, I, I want to make some, some suggestions. And again, I'm, I'm not being legalistic here. I'm just telling you that when, you know, if I told Terry when we were dating that I was going to pick her up at 6.30, I was there before 6.30. Why? out of respect for her. She shouldn't have to stand there and wait for me. If anybody's going to do the waiting, I'll do the waiting. But I'm going to be there when I'm supposed to be there. There's nothing worse to me than being late for an appointment. I hate to be late for an appointment. You say, well, you just need to chill out and relax. No, if I go to a doctor's office and he can't see me at that time, that's up to him, but I'm going to be there when he told me to be there. If I have an appointment to see somebody, I'm going to be there. If I tell somebody you, well, I can see you at 4 o'clock this afternoon, then I'm going to be there at 4 o'clock this afternoon unless providentially hindered. And providentially hindered doesn't mean I forgot to shine my shoes. 
You see, we're to come and prepare to be in the presence of God. So let me give you some suggestions. Number one, oh, we're coming up on spring break, and you're not going to like number one. Don't take every long weekend away from church. Don't take every long weekend away from church. Now, some of you, I know how you think, because I are one of you. I know how you think. Oh, man, we got Monday off. The kids got Monday out of school. We can go to the beach. We got this. We can go to the beach. And you do more planning for your long weekends than you do for your worship. Say, well, we just need to get away. Yeah, and so you go down there and you fight that traffic down to Panama City. What should take two and a half hours takes you five and a half because you're fighting everybody else that's going down there. And then you're fighting a crowd at the restaurant. And then you come back and you come home and you're exhausted and you're tired on a weekend when you're going to try to get rest. And now you're going to pay $2.05 a gallon for your regular gas. Can I suggest to you, you can save some money and give it to generations by staying home? Don't plan every way you can be gone because you're setting your priorities there. And by the way, you are teaching your kids a serious lesson. What you're teaching your children is we miss church every time we can. That's what you're telling your kids. And I want to tell you, what you do in moderation, they will do to excess. And they will end up not even going to church because it's not important enough to you to even give up a weekend of fun to show them anything spiritual. So don't take every weekend off. Secondly, readjust your schedule to include Sunday nights. Now I'm really stepping on toes. Readjust your schedule to include Sunday nights. You know, this is the first day of the week. What we do on the first day of the week is important. Monday's not the first day of the week. Sunday's the first day of the week. But you readjust your schedule to include Sunday nights. Now, somebody will say, but that's my family night. Hey, you got six other nights for family night. You got six other nights. Now, I didn't have to do this because I worked my schedule good enough, but I remember Nelson Price saying, when he, had children, when he had his children, he gave up golf because he could spend time with his kids when he could have been playing golf. Maybe you need to give up something yourself so that you can make priorities be what priorities ought to be. By the way, every time you stay home on Sunday night and they see you come to church on Sunday morning, they, you, you're telling them who's running your life. You are. You're giving a bad witness. And you're saying to your kids, Sunday morning is all we need to have a deep, intimate relationship with God. And by the way, if I got a chance to sit outside your house and look in your window on your family night on Sunday night, family night is probably the four of you doing four different things or watching a television program and not communicating. Family night is not sitting there staring at a screen. Family night is family involvement. It's not mindless viewing of something of a movie or a television show. Family night is talking to your kids. Family night is communicating with your wife. It's not being brainless and watching television. So you ought to make a priority of Sunday morning and Sunday night. And let me tell you why that's important. Now, I know that there are churches that don't have Sunday night service. We do. And if you're going to be a part of this church, you ought to make a Sunday night a part of what you do because that's who we are. 
That's who we are. You can go to a church, I can name some in town that don't have Sunday night, but they won't baptize nine people on a Sunday and they won't have 15 people join like we did last Sunday. So if you want to be a part of a dead church, go be a part of a dead church. You're welcome to do it. We'll help you. But if you want to be in a place where your kids see God work, then you better give them an opportunity to see God working. We need to understand something, folks. Those kids that have just been trained that all we're going to do is come one hour on Sunday to Sunday school and one hour to worship, they're going to get up and they're going to say, well, we'll just go one week out of the month. Now listen to me very carefully. I'm not interested in spending $5 million on a sports complex and debt retirement and filling this building with a generation of people who have a one-hour commitment to God. And don't ask me to sacrifice and to give and other people to sacrifice and to give to reach generations. And then when we reach them and they say, man, I can't believe the Lord has changed my life. The Lord has changed my family. I can't wait. We have church on Sunday night. That's great. Well, we don't come back on Sunday night. That's our family night. Then you've helped cause the backsliding of a new believer. Now remember, you are a witness and an influencer. Not only your kids and your family, but your friends. And if baseball and softball and basketball and ballet and dance and everything else is taking up the other six nights, could I suggest to you, in my humble and accurate opinion, give up one of those things and put God at the forefront of your family? Because your kids are not going to take a baseball bat to heaven. They're not going to take their ballet dress to heaven. The only thing that's going to go to heaven is the Bible and the souls of men. And you teach them eternal things or you teach them temporary things by your choices. So mom and dad, shape up. Get a real life. Quit trying to please and compete with the carnal, unchurched neighbors and set an example for them. Be a leader. You say, well, that's easy for you to say. You're a preacher, and we pay you to preach on Sunday night. Let me tell you what I told my girls growing up. I've got two girls, 122 and 120. They're both faithful. They both love the Lord. They're both involved in the things of God. And I want to tell you something. What I told my daughters from day one was, we don't go to church on Sunday morning and Sunday night because I'm the pastor. If I was a plumber, we'd be there. It has nothing to do with my profession It has everything to do with my faith. I believe that God is worthy to be worshipped. And so it has everything to do with what I believe about God. Now, y'all are not listening quick enough, and this sermon's going to go too long. All right, let's pick it up. If you have a guest who won't come to church, get up and come without them. Well, we couldn't come today because we had family and we had friends in, and they wouldn't come to church, so we just stayed home. What a great witness. That's going to impress your lost relatives that Jesus made a difference in your life. Hey, make them fix their their own breakfast and come. Leave them in bed. They don't want to get up. We've done it before. Just leave them. You know what you just said? This is important to us. It means more to us than anything else. Just a thought. If you want to have a witness, you've got to be a witness. Number four, go to bed early on Saturday night. We typically 
stay up the latest on the night before we get, and then we wonder why we're tired when we come to church. Number five, get everything ready on Saturday. Iron the clothes, shine the shoes, get the offering envelopes out, find your Bible, do everything you got to do on Saturday night so you're ready on Sunday morning. Number six, leave the house in time to enjoy the ride. Would you come on? We're going to be late. The preacher's going to talk about me. I had to park on the third row last Sunday, and I'm not parking there this week. Leave early to enjoy the rides. Can I give you just a little principle here? Don't cut corners on the eternal. If you're going to cut corners, cut corners in other areas of your life. But don't cut corners on the eternal. Luke 4, 16, Jesus, as was his custom, went into the synagogue. One more principle here. Church is not peripheral to the world. The world is peripheral to the church. Church is not peripheral to the world. The world is peripheral to the church. Come prayed up, number three. Watchman Nee says to come into the presence of God and kneel before Him for an hour demands all the strength we possess. We have to be violent to hold that ground. Now, I'm going to give you a handout. I'm going to save some time here, but I'm going to give you a handout at the end of the service that tells you what to do during the week to get ready for worship, what to do the day before, and what to do on Sunday. So I'm not going to cover that right now. But I'm going to say, I'm, I'm going to say this about worship, okay? Help me out here, okay? Just pamper me for a moment. Please don't put your Bibles up before the sermon's through. I mean, some of you, the minute that last blank is filled in, get the purse, get the purse. We're five minutes from leaving, honey. We're five minutes from leaving. We're going to beat the Methodists and the Episcopalians to lunch. Huh? Don't close your Bible up. I may still have something to say that you need to write down. It may be in that last two minutes that God speaks to your heart and you need to write it down and remember it. I tell you, when I get to that last blank, sometimes it sounds like the waves coming in on a beach. <laughs> Just wait. You'll be all right. No more than two people will beat you out the door. It's okay. Stay and enjoy the service. We're not through. Just come prayed up. Tozer said, God meant for the new convert to become a worshiper first. After that, he can become a worker. G. Campbell Morgan defined worship as finding of my own life and yielding of it wholly to God for the fulfillment of his purpose. Finally, worship requires a change in priorities. Look at verse 4. Great is the Lord and greatly to be praised. If he is, I have to make changes. He is to be feared above all other gods. If he is, I have to make changes. Ascribe to the Lord the glory due his name. That demands that I make adjust, adjustments. Verse 10, say among the nations, the Lord reigns. I've got to make adjustments if the Lord's reigning in my life. It means I don't get up and just 
say, well, I don't know. Do I feel like going to church today or not? Oh, you just get up and go. You see, you make a choice before you have to. One of the ways that you get ahead in life is you make a choice before you have to make it. If you wait till Sunday morning to decide whether you're coming, the devil will always give you a slight headache. Oh, I'm feeling a little bad today. But if you've already decided, take two Advil and come. It's not rocket science, folks. Karen Maines wrote a great book on worship, and she says this, and I'm going to read it to you. It's pretty lengthy, but I want to read it. For many of us, something has gone wrong with Sunday. Now, I want you to listen very carefully, because I'm going to tell you, if you've ever had trouble getting to church on Sunday, you're about to have a lady write an article that's been reading your mail. Okay? Listen to this. We leave having no idea we participate in a form of godliness without the power of godliness. That our Sunday attendance was perfunctory without meaning. An intellectual exercise in neutral without ever shifting into the high gear of heart and soul beating upward toward worship. No wonder people stop going to church and, or their attendance becomes irregular. Any excuse, any excuse whatsoever, a slight cold, overdue homework, too much weekend paperwork, becomes a reason enough to stay away. For years, the big question in our home was, why did our family equilibrium tilt precariously out of control between Saturday night and Sunday morning? One child would be missing a crucial dress item that I had overlooked in the back of the closet. This precipitated a quick wash and dry, then ironing out the damp fabric. It seemed even the dog collaborated with confusion, invariably vomiting on the living room carpet. There was never toothpaste in the right bathroom. There was usual my turn first arguments to use the blow dryer to take a shower ad infinitum. And about a half an hour before departure time for church, this overwhelming panic would begin to rise from the pit of my stomach, constrict my chest, and finally explode from my mouth. Let's get going! We're going to be late. Why do we have to go through this every Sunday? I don't know where you left your Bible. Come on, get out the door. I had accepted and created a lie that Sunday is the worst day of the week. The psalmist said, he planted a witness in Jacob and set his word firmly in Israel, then commanded our parents to teach it to their children so the next generation would know and all generations to come know the truth and tell the stories so their children can trust in God and never forget the works of God, but keep His commands to the letter. Heaven forbid that they should be like their parents, bullheaded and bad, a fickle and faithless bunch who never stayed true to God. And then she closes. If we neglect to make Sunday special in our homes, we must not shake our heads one day to discover that we have raised children who are spiritually wiggly, who cry and whine and are distracted from things of the soul, who develop intense emotional dislikes regarding church, who are defiant toward the very things we say we hold dear, whose greatest deficiency is their ability to love God with all their heart, with all their soul, with all their mind, and with all their strength. Let's stand together. Heads are bowed and eyes are closed.
Vance Havner said it's better to people to go out of church sad or mad or glad than to just go out. I don't know where you are today, but I've said what I've said today to try to help you. Because here's what I don't want. I did this for 15 years in youth ministry, and I've watched it for almost 20 years of pastoring. I don't want you to bring me your kids when they're 15 and 16 years old and say, my kid's on drugs, my kid's on alcohol, my kid doesn't want to come to church, my kid doesn't want to do this, my kid won't cooperate, my kid doesn't respect authority. You fix them. When you, by your choices, have helped to break them. What you do with your kids is an investment in them. It is a legacy for them. What is important to you will many times become important to them. When I was growing up and I was living at home my first two years in college, my dad took the curfew off. He said, you can come in anytime you want to. You can come in at 2 o'clock, you can come in at 3 o'clock. just want you to know, whenever you come in, as long as you eat my food, sit at my table, drink my water, drive my car, you're going to be up and you're going to be in Sunday school on Sunday morning. Now, I want to tell you, there's some Saturday nights, I came in 3, 3.15 in the morning. I was up and I was in Sunday school. I don't think that was unfair. I think he just loved me enough to say, you can do what you want to do, but you're going to do what I want you to do as long as you're in my house. Now, parents, you need to run your houses spiritually. You need to be in control. You need to set the standard. You don't need to be dropping your kids off and hoping somebody else will raise them. You need to be a part of raising them spiritually yourself. And then if they make the wrong choices, you won't be on a guilt trip for the rest of your life because they will have made their choices, but you will have done the right thing.